Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. This week, for our bonus episode, we interviewed director Lynn Shelton. She directed the film Sword of Trust, which comes out in theaters today, July 12th. We really enjoyed talking with Lynn about her improvisational approach to the film, what she looks for in fellow collaborators, and her filmmaking process. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining us today, Lynn. Thanks for having me. So we just want to start at the beginning. What made you decide to become a filmmaker and how did you first get started in filmmaking and directing? Well, I always was drawn to film and I remember when I I started as an actor in the theater, um, but I remember by the time I was thinking about going to graduate school and my initial, my um, BA was in the School of Drama, from the School of Drama at the University of Washington, with acting as a emphasis. But when I started thinking about graduate school, I remember trying to decide between directing and acting, and specifically film directing. And I was, I only, I dismissed filmmaking pretty quickly because it seemed very intimidating to me. The idea, here was what I knew about directing, that films cost millions and millions of dollars, and that as the director, I would be responsible for somebody else's millions of dollars, and it was just too much for me to even consider. That was sort of my impression. So even though I loved film, and I loved the idea of making movies, and I remember my mom showing me Jules and Jim when I was pretty young. She was obsessed with that movie, and that was the first movie that I ever thought about the the hand of the filmmaker. There's a moment, there's a scene in the middle of the film where Jean Moreau's face is frozen. Like he kind of freeze frames and then continues the film and then freeze frames and continues it. And I remember like being like, oh, somebody like decided to do that. And what did it mean? And why did he do that? You know, and I remember thinking about who was putting together the movie and thinking about the direction and also the editing of it. It just overall um, got me thinking about the idea of making movies and, um, but it took me a very, very long time, uh, to actually get the confidence up and feel like I had the skill set and the comfort in my own skin to be able to actually take the helm of a film. So I had this very long circuitous unorthodox film school that started with, you know, theater acting training. And then I ended up going to graduate school in photography and started to do experimental film and video art. I was kind of on the fence about what it was, but it was just sort of pure expression as an artist um, and not really thinking about an audience even. And I supported that habit by using my marketable skill of editing to make money and teaching other people to edit. And digital editing was relatively new at the time, so I was able to kind of fit into that niche. And so... (laughs) It really, I remember going from acting to photography, it felt like such a hairpin turn. And I was like leaving behind this passion I'd had since I was a little kid. And am I being fickle? You know, it didn't, I didn't understand why I was sort of making this switch from being in front of to behind the lens. And then it was only later after editing. And then finally I I started editing narrative films and realized 
oh, I'm ready now to start directing. And I realized, oh, it all adds up. Like all of those stages in my development as an artist uh, add up to actually a pretty good skill set for interesting tool bag for filmmaking. And so that was, that was my long road. And then I remember it sort of was cemented in my mid thirties. I saw Claire Denis come to speak in Seattle where I lived and they were doing a retrospective of her films, which I think at that point she'd done like five or six films. And then Vendredi Soir, her um, film Friday night was coming out. And then she, they did a little onstage sort of interview one night and through that experience, I came to realize that she had been 40 when she made her first feature film. And it was just like a total lightning flash for me. I was just like, it's not too late. I could be a filmmaker and, you know, I still have a few years left to make my first film. And, and then I just followed in her footsteps. Like that's exactly what I did. My first feature was premiered when I was 40 years old at slam dance, one slam dance. And then, you know, I've made eight films in about 13 years and, and yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've worked primarily in the indie sphere of filmmaking. What has kept you inspired and excited to keep making these independent films? Well, the best thing about making a small film for not a lot of money is that somebody once told me that each extra million dollars means you have 10 more people who are like hovering over you worriedly wringing their hands. (laughs) And, and so when you make a film that is responsibly budgeted, you know, and, and doesn't cost an arm and a leg and several more arms and several more legs, you have the freedom to actually be, have more creative control. And so it's interesting going back and forth between television and film because I do a lot of television and television is an extremely collaborative environment, which I found I really am good at and I really enjoy um, a lot. The director is not, unless it's your show that you've created, you're not the creative visionary. You're usually um, there to help uh, fulfill somebody else's creative vision. And that is a also has its own um, beauty <laughs> and it's kind of nice to have the burden lifted of being the one who has to like be the the total visionary but it's also really nice to then go back into an environment where when I make a film like sort of trust where I just willed that film into existence and every single person that was involved with the film was invited by me including the producer you know so I asked my friend Ted Speaker if he would produce for me and then I have much more control over creating the entire culture of what that collaborative environment is going to look like and the emotional, emotionally safe kind of invisible container that people can play in and feel like they can risk and not be worried about um, failing or that I'm going to let them look bad on screen, you know, especially for actors, but also everybody involved needs to feel in order to bring their best to the table, they're going to be, they're going to need to feel emotionally safe because creativity is inherently risky. So in order to take risks, you know, big risks, you got to feel emotionally safe. So the thing that's nice about independent filmmaking, um, especially honestly on a really small budget level, there are a lot of challenges, obviously, to making a film within a tight budget, a tight, a tight time schedule, you know, limited resources. But if you find the right team and, you know, you can create this really close knit sort of family and it's very bonded. And then you also have a lot of control over how you want the thing to turn out. And that's become easier, I have to admit, over time as I have a track record of making films successfully so that 
investors are more likely to want to give me money and you know it definitely or actors want to work with me because they've seen previous works of mine and they're like oh yeah I would like to work in that environment or in that style um but even you know yeah even in the early days um it's just a it's just a, a creatively free kind of environment so we're curious about the collaboration between you and Mark Marin, who starred in Sort of Trust. Uh, you directed him on his TV series, Marin, and we're curious uh, what you saw in him that inspired you to collaborate with him again, or if you knew him previously, and just kind of what that story was. I met Mark almost exactly four years ago. I think it was beginning early August 2015 when we met, um, because I was on his podcast, WTF, and he talked to me about my films, and we had an odd connection right from the beginning. Like we found that there were all these odd similarities and kind of parallels in our lives. Like we were both late bloomers, like had come to success or a sense of, you know, real self and what we were meant to do in this world later in life. We had both been poets and photographers early on in our lives. And there were just all these interesting, um, we were in New York at this New York City in the at the same time, like literally just across, a few blocks from each other, across from town. It was it was really eerie, <laughs> and we actually kept in touch. And it was only a few months later that I was able to start directing him. And I when I directed him on Marin, it was the first episode block, the episode one and two of his fourth season, which was this opportunity to really, as as the director, step in and be kind of a a real filmmaker because all of the previously designated locations and scenarios were all gone because at the end of season three, he had fallen, his character fell off the wagon and he wanted to do the last season. He said, I'll do one more season, but I don't want it to have to be tied to recreating, um, things that have happened in my actual life, which is what his first three seasons were based on. And so it was like he wrote this extended feature film and it was about falling off the wagon, becoming sober again, re-envisioning your life. It was a really, I think it was a very compelling season and a really special one. And I wish more attention had been paid to it, you know, at an award season. And to be a part of that to design the little storage unit he was living in because he had lost his home and his job and his friends and everything. Um, and to be able to be figure out how to visually interpret his hallucinations that he was having because he was on drugs and then he was detoxing and, you know, all these interesting challenges and to, and to put him in all these different scenarios and see his true depth. I felt like this is a guy who has untapped depths, uh, as an actor and I want the world to see those depths. I just immediately saw that. I thought he had a really compelling screen presence and I just knew from directing him that just from the little I was able, I mean, not little, I was able to bring a lot out of him, but, um, I felt, and it was very satisfying to work with him because especially at the time, and he's not quite the same now because he's a little bit more, he has way more experience as an actor, having gone through all these episodes of glow and been in some movies and stuff. Um, but at the time he was just such a simple, 
performer because he would show up with his lines memorized and just open and ready to listen. But he didn't really, he hadn't really had a preformed shape of the scene. He hadn't done because he he had very little training, you know, back in college he had trained, but really not since. And so it was incredible to me how I would, I could feel like I was a part of the performance because I would give him a note and he would immediately push back on the note, but then he would always end up taking it. And uh, once he he told me later, he's like, well, it finally occurred to me, maybe you weren't just trying to fuck with me. That was the funniest thing he ever said to me. And once he started building trust, he he would take the note more readily. But it would just like snap into focus. Like it was incredible. And to feel like I was a part of that process was really exciting. Um, but yeah, right away I wanted to work with him. And then after, again, and he agreed, you know, he, he felt like um, he really sort of, we established this sort of sense of trust between us. And then almost immediately after that experience, we started to co-write a script together, which we're still working on years later, three and a half years later, but, but we're almost there. But I started getting exasperated because I was like, I just want to get on set with you again. So he said, look, just we, we are so busy. We had a hard time finding the time to get together and, and write this thing and finish it. So he said, look, you know, you could write another movie by yourself, do the writing part of it and write apart from me and I'll show up and, and, and be there for you to, to do. But the thing that's so crazy is that out of all the TV shows in all the world, I had been booked to direct an episode of this new TV show on Netflix called Glow months before he was even asked to read for the part. It was so crazy. And then the part, the episode, then he got cast. And the episode that I directed the first season was his character's like big, you know, episode. And it was total serendipity. It was just, it was crazy to me. (laughs) It was nuts. And then the same thing, I got to do really great episodes for Sam the next season as well. Um, Ironically, this last season, I directed two episodes and he's, I think I have one scene with him or something. There was like no Sam episodes, but by then it was like, okay, well, we've already made a movie together. We'll make another one. And he asked me to do a special. And so we sort of became, we sort of forged a creative partnership like right away. Wow. That's cool. That's so fascinating. So Sword of Trust was your first film not set in Washington. Yes. Okay. Indeed. So we're curious, how did the setting of the South inform and kind of enrich the work on this project? Well, it was terrifying to be in a different, you know, I grew up in Seattle and then I lived for 10 years in New York, but then I came back and settled down there and bought a house and raised a kid there and, you know, really settled in and was, was coming down back and forth a lot in the last few years between LA and Seattle as I was doing more and more TV work and there was no TV work in Seattle. So I was always coming to LA for that sometimes New York, but it was terrifying to make a film that wasn't set in a place where I just know the region so deeply. It's just in my, in my blood and bones. And, um, and I didn't want to misrepresent the South. I didn't want to be a northerner coming in and pretending to know what it was, you know, and, or to be disrespectful, you know, of the South. So what was nice was that the producer was, is a Birmingham, Alabama resident. Um, there were, most of the crew were also, there were also local actors who were from, um, that region. So I really used them as my touchstones to make sure that I was being authentic and respectful. And, you know, even though I was making a comedy, um, and, and it was really, and I spent time there in prep, you know, we had a writer's retreat, actually Mike and I, who I asked Mike O'Brien, I asked to help co-write this movie with me. We went to Kentucky first. Originally it was going to be in Kentucky. So we spent a good week in there, uh, in that state. 
which was our first sort of taste of the South. And then we moved it to Birmingham when my producer, Ted, asked if we would move it to Alabama. And I said, as long as it's in the South, it's going to work. It's fine. It just needs to be somewhere down there. And, um, and so really spent a lot of time in prep, you know, kind of trying to understand the, the light and the region and a lot of, you know, just driving around and looking for locations and really kind of soaking it up. And I, I was channeling, you know, the, one of the filmmakers who really inspired me was John Sayles, because he'll go to a different region, he'll get to know the region, he'll write for that region, and he'll, he likes to bounce around and do that for different films. And I remembered hearing him talk about that once, and I thought, I'll just be John Sayles, I'll do this, you know, I'll be able to, like, get to know, I'll be a stranger in a strange land, but then I'll get to know it, and I'll, you know, so that was sort of my, my point of inspiration. But um, it was really exhilarating and, and it was surreal, but it was really, cause I got to say, I mean, as a Pacific Northwesterner, the South is like visiting another country or another planet. Really. It's so different. It really, it feels a whole, has a whole different vibe culturally. And it was, it's really fun to get to know it. What draws you to the medium of feature filmmaking? You have made so many films in the last 10 years and that's such a feat. Uh, what keeps you excited about creating film? I mean, it's just like, I, I, I sometimes refer to it as a pathology, <laughs> a sickness. I just have to keep making movies. Um, I, you know, I, I've had, because television has become such a, uh, important and, you know, pre, pre, like just in the forefront of media and, and the culture right now, I get prompted by my reps a lot to like come up with a TV show. But for me, my brain is sort of fixed in this three act structure, this, this kind of 90 minute (laughs) narrative structure. And that's how I think of stories. It really is. It's very, it's very interesting. And I have, you know, someday maybe I'll think of a TV show, but, and I would like to, because it really seems to be where so much, you know, creative capital, financial capital is at, but there's just something about that structure that I really am drawn to again and again and again. And I like, I like, I think the idea of like dropping into people's lives and then pulling out again. And that's why that my, my finales never completely wrap up really cleanly. I like to leave things. I like you to have the sense that these people are going to continue to live after, you know, we leave their lives, you know? Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's just, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, yeah, I, it, it's an obsession. <laughs> sort of trust started as a 50 page treatment we read, which mm-hmm. you then worked through in an improvisational manner on set. Um, you kind of spoke a little bit about needing that trust with your cast and how did you keep that film true to your initial vision or how did you let it evolve as it kind of went on? I think that I'm at my best as a filmmaker when I am a curator of the best ideas. So I create, I like to think of creating this, as I mentioned before, this emotionally safe and visible container where everybody is invited to come and play and they all feel valued and respected. And, you know, and this includes the director of photography, my co-writer, my actors, my editor. I mean, with improvisational films in particular, it's really editing is more like you're editing a documentary. You have all this, you've gathered all this footage that's almost like found within a certain circumstance, but it's like not pre-written. So you don't really have a clear roadmap and that's okay. It's just that my editor brain, cause I was an editor before I'm on set and I'm like, okay, I think I have enough ingredients in my shopping cart that I'm going to be able to put something together later. But you really write the final script in the edit room. Like really, you know, I mean, you always do with every film, but 
with improvisation in particular. The first edit of this film was two and a half hours long and it was all solid. It was so funny and it was so great. And I was like, how are we going to cut five minutes, much less an hour? Cause I wanted it to be a 90 minute film and it ended up being 88 minutes. And we kept doing feedback screenings and getting like, no, tell us what's working, what's not, you know, and finding, Oh, we don't need that. It's not helping the story. It's so funny, but it's not helping the story. It's not helping the film. And we just kept cutting, 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 cutting. And yeah, it's, it's very, um, it, 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 it's very much about as a control freak, it's very much about letting go of any kind of ego, you know, like I, these are my words and they are precious. You know, it's like letting go of all of that. Whatever works is what I want on the screen and you making everybody feel like I said this before, but making the actors really understand that I'm never going to let anything bad show up on screen so they can risk all they want. They can fall down on their faces. They can have a scene that just feels like paint drying and I'm just going to cut it together and make it seem, you know, like they're brilliant and cause they are, but you know, I can help them even more. So after we saw the film, we kept thinking about its examination of truth, kind of the truth of what the sword was, the emotional truth of the people involved, the truth of history and how we see it. Was this examination a reflection of your own experience or more of an examination of the times we live in with all the talk in the news of fake news, et cetera, or both? Um, I mean, I think both. It started as a my desire to make a film that felt relevant to what's going on in our culture right now. And one of the things that I find most disturbing is this peak moment we're having uh, with a conspiracy theorist in chief, you know, conspiracy theories have always been around and the idea of alternative facts and people creating their own magical thinking, you know, reality to fit their own whims or belief systems or whatever feels comforting to them somehow, um, (laughs) or validating of their own, you know, ideas or, or selves. Um, but it, I, I find it deeply disturbing how it's just becoming more and more and more acceptable to just, you know, make your own own reality. And um, and so I wanted to make something that felt culturally relevant, but also didn't make you feel like slitting your wrists when you left the theater. So, <laughs> um, so that definitely became kind of the, the seed of why. And then it ended up expanding. I mean, one of the reasons that we have these... Um, sort of there's sort of the good guys and the bad guys and the bad guys are all kind of hoodwinked you know by these these ridiculous ideas but i wanted to show that everybody's susceptible to it everybody's susceptible to being a sucker everybody's susceptible to you know crazy thinking or get letting yourself you know your fantasies get the better of you um and so you know one of our heroes is firmly uh, in that in in that camp as well and so that was a gentle you know again it's 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 all sort of a gentle and loving um you know referencing to that human flaw that we have and also kind of a little bit of a like a red flag warning like everybody maybe be on the lookout for you know letting yourself get a little carried away um but yeah so that's kind of where it came from yeah yeah we like that that yeah. was cool sweet well we end um every interview with our rapid response segment three two one action you can answer in like a word or phrase uh so we start with three your favorite or most influential film jules and jim two dream person you want to work with meryl streep <laughs> one best advice you've ever received um, for filmmaking, let's say, okay, so for micro-budget independent filmmaking in particular, but really it works for pretty much anything unless you just have an 
an enormous amount of, you know, a, a extra amount of time and, and uh, money. Nobody I know has ever had that. Um, you got your $1 scenes and your $10 scenes and look at where you can bank up your time. What, what scenes can you tell most expediently and not lose any narrative, you know, um, not, not cheat the narrative, um, by doing so, but then you can bank up your time for the ones that really need more, more time, either in the process of working it out with the actors or in, you know, really making sure you, the coverage is correct, you know? So, yeah. And action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Um, I think because I have been working pretty much nonstop for the last year and a half, like literally nonstop, I went straight from making this nose to the grindstone, like making this movie really fast and editing it really fast and then going immediately into TV episode after TV episode, like six in a row and then going to South by Southwest and then immediately starting on this limited series that I'm working on right now that'll last for a total of eight months. I am looking forward to taking a little break. to be completely honest, because I don't ever let myself do that. I've been a real, I've really recognized that I've become a real workaholic the last few years. And I think that, um, that would probably be good for my art and good for my soul. So that is literally what I'm looking forward to. (laughs) Sounds like a good thing. And where can people follow you on social media or follow sort of trust or when? Let's see. Well, Twitter, I'm Lynn Shelton film. I tried to use that on Instagram, but somebody had stolen it and created a weird fake account. So I'm the Lynn Shelton on Instagram, but those are really the two. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thank you. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.